there are so many benefits that we have in the Lord that the psalmist reminds us of all those list of benefits he heals our diseases he forgives he redeems us he crowns us he satisfies our mouth and he renews our youth nothing better than serving the Lord amen God's way is always it is the only way number one it is always the best way so the psalmist there David enumerates all the benefits of those who are the Lord he executes righteousness and justice he is merciful gracious as we read earlier slow to anger he will not always strive with us he doesn't deal with us according to our sins he is much wiser than us and he moves our transgressions far away from us he knows that we're dust he knows that we're weak and God deals with us as such he is such a merciful God and we praise him for that this morning I mean, let us go before the Lord in prayer with this consideration Father we bless you this morning we, we praise you as we just read as we just heard the testimony of yourself from your word that Lord your name is worthy to be blessed and praised and Lord may we not forget your benefits often as we deal with life we deal with the ups and downs of life Lord we often forget the benefits that we have as believers as being your children Lord you forgive us all our iniquities you heal us you redeem us you redeem our life from destruction the destruction of sin the destruction of evil the destruction of Satan's schemes you crowned us with your loving kindness and your mercies as your people Lord those of us who are in you through Christ we don't have to walk around bogged down by our sins because of your mercy you have removed our sins from us you satisfy our mouth with good things and Lord you renew our youth like the eagle Lord these are great benefits and Lord also your word tells us that you are merciful and gracious you are slow to anger you abound in mercy your, your mercy knows no bounds Lord you will not keep your anger forever and Lord you don't deal with us according to our sins and you don't punish us according to our iniquities because Lord all of us deserve death your, your word tells us in Romans 3 that the wages of sin is death Lord we deserve death every time we sin but Father you are you're so gracious you don't punish us according to our iniquities Lord rather you punished your son Jesus Christ he was punished in our place for our, for our sins he was bruised for our iniquities the chastisement that brought us peace was upon him and Father, we thank you for being such a gracious and merciful God who sent Christ to the cross to die as our substitute. And Lord, you know our frame. You know that we are dust. 
that our days are like grass, that we are here today and that we're gone tomorrow and we're remembered no more. Lord, you know the transient nature of man that, that we're just passing through. But Lord, as opposed to the transitory nature of man, you are from everlasting to everlasting. Your mercy is from everlasting to everlasting. Your righteousness passed down to generations. Lord, you are the forever God. You are the eternal God. Your mercy is forever. Your righteousness is forever. Lord, your throne, your kingdom is forever. And Lord, we have the privilege of worshiping such a great God. And we thank you this morning. And Father, you're also gracious enough to hear our prayers as we read in the catechism this morning. That Lord, it is, a, it is an act of mercy that you even hear my prayer this morning as I'm praying. It's not I didn't do anything to deserve, Lord, for you to hear my prayer. Lord, you hear my prayer according to your good, sovereign, and perfect will, according to your mercy. And, Lord, I pray that you continue to hear it this morning. Father, we pray for uh, the situation in between Russia and Ukraine. We're praying for a peaceful resolution. We pray for the hearts of Vladimir Putin to be turned to you in repentance. He is an evil man. And Lord, I pray that you may save him from his sins. He is not beyond the reach of the gospel. He is not beyond your power to save. I pray that you save him, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you work in the hearts of all in his nation and also in Ukraine to bring people to salvation. Lord, I was listening on my way to church this morning, the reports from the Christian church over in Ukraine that they, in spite of being uh, under uh, in harm's way, they're still preaching the gospel. They're still spreading the gospel. Lord, we thank you for that, that the church mission does not stop even in the midst of war. One pastor in Ukraine said that while others are fleeing, the church is staying and the church is continuing to gather and the church is continuing to preach Christ. And Lord, that is what you have called your church to do. That is what we saw take place in the book of Acts when the church was being persecuted, that the church continued to meet, the church continued to gather and the gospel continued to proliferate and to spread throughout the world. Lord, that is the mission of the church. We thank you that the Christian church over in Ukraine is continuing to proliferate and spread in the gospel. Lord, we pray that you continue to bless them and to protect them as they do that. And Lord, we pray for Christians in other nations, even here in America, that we not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe that we not be ashamed of this gospel, but that we not be ashamed to say that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, not being ashamed to call people to repent and believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. Lord, we thank you for the church over there in Ukraine and, and other nations that are being persecuted, that they continue to meet, that they continue to gather. As Lord, as we read this morning, there is only one body. All of us are part of the same body. 
the church of Christ is one body throughout the whole world regardless of ethnicity or nationality or melanin count in their skin Lord we are all one body and we pray for the body we pray for the body of Christ in Ukraine we pray for the body of Christ in Russia we pray for the body of Christ in North Korea and in China and in the Middle East and in countries in Africa on the continent of Africa where Christians are being persecuted and Christians are being slaughtered Lord we pray for the body of Christ that the gospel may proliferate we can be so comfortable here in America because we don't have any conflicts uh, coming our way we don't have any wars being fought on our soul but Lord there are wars uh, being fought inside the church because there are doctrinal heresies that are being introduced there are secular ideologies and worldviews as we learned this past Wednesday night that are being uh, introduced into the church so Father we pray that your grace be with all true Christians everywhere and that the gospel may proliferate and Lord we thank you for the local church the, the blessings of the local church all churches local we thank you for the churches in our area, the brethren, the, the, the brethren who are laboring and preaching the true gospel, like our brother Cody Hill at Iron City Baptist and Justin Holland at Mountain View and brother Curley at uh, First Baptist Lionville and Bob St. John at uh, ABC and Carlton and all the brothers at uh, Grace Fellowship and Phil at Redeemer and myself at the Living Church and Anthony at Christian fellowship Lord we thank you for all these brothers and more who are not mentioned who are proclaiming Christ who are holding forth to the truth who are faithfully shepherding their flocks Father we, we thank you for these men continue to raise up godly men Lord in the church to lead our churches to lead our families to lead our homes to lead in society Lord raise up godly men Continue to raise them up to do what you have called us to do. And Lord, now we come down to your word as we look at the first part of this 13th chapter, as we look at the dangers and the fallbacks to unholy alliances. Lord, may you help me by your spirit to preach this text faithfully, to preach it to your glory. And Lord, may you send your spirit to help us to learn the truths that we will hear this morning. And Lord, may we do self-examination to look at unholy alliances that we ourselves may be part of and divest ourselves of them and not be tainted by their influence. Father, bless us all as we hear from your word this morning. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen. Man, this morning and for the next three weeks, we're going to look at the 13th chapter of Nehemiah. We're going to look at Nehemiah's final reforms um, that he made with the people of God as they settled into this uh, land that they were exiled from for about 70 years and this week we're going to look at the first nine 
by verses. Then next week we'll look at verses 10 through 23. Then third week we'll look at verses 23 through 28, the balance of the chapter. And our sermon topic is Nehemiah's final reforms, the consequences of unholy alliances. And we're going to again treat the first nine verses of this final chapter. And just to keep this context in mind, Nehemiah in the Hebrew Bible, the Jewish Bible, Nehemiah is the last book in the Hebrew Bible. That was the last book because the exile, the 70 years had been completed. Uh, so this this was the this is the last book in the in the Hebrew Bible uh, before you get to the Gospels. In our Bible, uh, Malachi is the last book, but the uh, prophecy of Malachi took place during the events of uh, the book of Nehemiah. So that's how they coincide with each other. So it reads here. Begin at verse 1 from the ESV translation. And this was, again, after the dedication of the wall and the choirs singing and all the worship service that took place. Just keep all this in mind. You're looking at uh, verse 43 of uh, chapter 12, the great joy that was heard far away and that the giving that was taking place and the songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. So all of this was taking place. And now we come to this chapter. It says, On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Those of us who did our numbers Bible study remember when we went uh, through that part. Yet our God turned the curse to a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel, all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priest. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. This is Nehemiah speaking first person. I was not in Jerusalem for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleaned the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God and the grain offering and the frankincense. Amen. 
So that's the first nine verses of this chapter. So we see already after the, the great time of worship and prayer and praise, worship had been restored to Jerusalem. Now this happens. I want to speak about unholy alliances. You don't hear this saying a lot anymore, but it still rings true. You all have probably heard the saying, oil and water don't mix. When you think about just a, a quick chemistry lesson here, oil and water don't mix because oil is more dense than water is. The, the molecules in oil are more closer together than the molecules in water. You can pour a glass of water and then pour any type of oily substance, whether it's grease or olive oil or canola oil or any type of oily substance into that water. And you can mix it together. You can swirl it together. And it may mix a little bit with it, but once that water settles, you will see the oil float to the top because oil and water don't mix. I remember when I was a cook in college and I worked at a restaurant called Old Country Buffet. It was a chain of buffet restaurants back in the 90s. And this one was in Montgomery. And I was the, the fry side cook. So I was responsible for the, the fried chicken and the fried fish and, and all the fried foods, the french fries and everything. Uh, that was my responsibility. We had two huge fryers. I mean, they were gigantic. And, uh, man, we could put about 40 or 50 pieces of chicken in there. Uh, but sometimes I made the mistake of letting a little water get in that grease. And you know what happens? That can cause a grease fire, although I didn't cause one. But when water enters that grease, those properties don't mix, so that grease gets hotter and just start popping everywhere. You ever accidentally done that before, put something wet near grease, and it just, you know, that's why people, when they fry turkey sometimes, the, the turkey is too wet, and they put into that oil, and all of a sudden, woof. <laughs> Because oil and water do not mix well. Those chemical properties don't, don't mix well. You also have situations like here in uh, you know, Calhoun County, we have what we call uh, interfaith ministries. And interfaith ministries is exactly as his name says. It's interfaith ministry. Uh, you have so-called uh, Christians and Muslims and and Hindus and Buddhists and Jews and even atheists, they they uh, meet together to, you know, do things out and they do some good out in the community. You know, they have the Meals on Wheels program that they they sponsor. They help people sometimes pay their you know power bills and different things like that. But it's called interfaith ministries. I remember a few years ago, Bob told me, you know, he was invited to one of their uh, breakfasts that they had and and uh, you know he was he was invited there to to be a guest and and so he went and he said he was incensed when he left I mean he was very upset he, he ended up turning red because he you know the the so-called Christian pastor had to get up and do a prayer but he could not pray in the name of Jesus he just had to say some type of general ecumenical all a, a prayer that wouldn't offend anyone of any other uh, faith and he said at that point that he was not going to 
have any alliance with interfaith ministries anymore because the thing is, if you're a Christian, you can't be a Christian when you're in those type of ministries. Every other person is free to practice their faith, but why are the Christians the ones who have to compromise on theirs? You've had in recent years uh, unholy alliances with uh, churches and uh, groups that are hostile to uh, the cause of biblical Christianity. When you ride through uh, some cities and, and look at some churches, you will see a flag that uh, resembles a rainbow hanging outside of their church. And you'll see some churches with banners that uh, say Black Lives Matter hanging outside of their church. And you may ask me, well, pastor, what is wrong with that? Well, number one, it is an unholy alliance because a lot of people say that, but they don't even know what these organizations stand for and what they represent. The rainbow flag, first of all, is God's flag. That was a sign of God's covenant to Noah after the flood that he would not destroy the earth by flood again. That rainbow is God's rainbow. It belongs to God. It doesn't belong to a group of people who revel in sexual perversion and rebellion against God, who want to mutilate uh, children, who want to give children drugs to stop their puberty and to mutilate their bodies and having them thinking that they can be of the opposite sex that is not who that rainbow belongs to but that group of people has hijacked it and you have churches who are aligning themselves forming alliances with them an alliance is basically a, a partnership and you hear them talk about their allies if you are an ally of something, that means that you are in partnership with them. That means that you are in agreement with everything that they stand for. That's what it means to have an alliance with someone or with a group. And churches that have those flags hanging from their buildings or inside their buildings, they are saying that they are in alliance with sexual perversion and sexual deviancy and sexual rebellion against God. That's what they're saying. It's an unholy alliance. The organization Black Lives Matter, they are an unholy group. Did you all know that Black Lives Matter was against the nuclear family? That they are against mothers and fathers and children, which is what makes up a nuclear family? Did you all know that? Did you all know that they promoted the whole lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer community and everything that they stand for? Did you all know that they promoted that? But yet you have churches with Black Lives Matter hanging off their buildings not even knowing what the organization stands for. I have a list of some of their beliefs here. 
that they actually scrubbed from their website uh, two years ago after everyone started realizing what they actually stood for. In fact, they was in the news two weeks ago because uh, they can't account for $60 million of donations that were given to them. But you know, during the summer of uh, 2020, the summer of George Floyd, all, all these companies were bound the need to Black Lives Matter and donating money to them. People donating money to this organization. And the leaders, who are three lesbian women and are avowed Marxists and communists, they got rich off of the backs of those donations. They did. But you had churches, you had Christians who were aligning themselves with this type of organization that is antithetical to the gospel. But you had churches forming partnerships with them. It was an unholy alliance. And the sad thing is, and I said this just a few minutes ago, why is it always that the Christians have to be the ones who compromise? It is always the church, the true church, who's called to compromise. No one else is called to compromise what they believe. Why does the church, why do God's people have to compromise and form unholy alliances? That's what we see here in this passage this morning. After all the strides, after all the reforms that Nehemiah made, the law was read, the people confessed their sins. They had a great time of worship. The people were distributed throughout the city and throughout the land as we looked at last week. All the people were given their duties. They celebrated with gladness at the dedication of the wall. Nehemiah goes away and goes back to where he was to serve under the king. And he hears that there was an unholy alliance taking place in the house of God. And you see the response that he was what? He was angry. So with the background of this passage, we, we have to note this and and we see this throughout, especially the uh, New Testament, as we, we were joking going through the book of uh, Exodus and Leviticus, you know, you had all these great things that happened, and then what did the people do? They rebelled against God. They turned back to God. God shows his mercy and grace to them, only for them to do what? Rebel again. The history of God's people reveals a distressing truth. Their heartfelt passion and sincere devotion it's often short-lived. That's what we see. And th this chapter 13, which is the last portion of the Old Testament to be written, is a clear example of this truth, and that's what we're going to see the next three weeks. When you read through First and Second Kings, and I encourage you, if you get a chance, read through those books. You will see the history of Israel and their kings. I mean, I, I was reading through uh, First and Second Kings back in 2015, and I, I wrote down in my notebook a list of all the kings in succession of Israel and Judah. 
and you will see king, especially in Israel. Israel, all the, all the kings Israel had, not one of them was good. All of them were wicked. All of them did evil. Every single one of them did evil. The first one was uh, Jeroboam. He was the king of the northern tribes, which were the ten tribes which made up Israel. This was after God had uh, split Israel in two under under uh, Rehoboam, who was the son of Solomon. In 1 Kings 12, it begins. This was after Solomon had sinned against God in marrying all those wives and concubines. So, so God had caused the kingdom to be split in two. And Rehoboam was the king of, of Judah in uh, 1 Kings 12. And Jeroboam became king of the northern tribe of Israel. In 1 Kings 12, beginning at verse 20. And throughout all of the rest of the kings of Israel, all of them were wicked. They formed unholy alliances with the Samaritans, with the Samaritans around them. And so God had judged that northern kingdom uh, in 722 uh, B.C. when the Assyrians under Shalmaneser came in and scattered all those people throughout the known world all in the northern kingdom that was a judgment against them and then you had Judah who were the two tribes to the south they had good king bad king good king bad king they had great kings such as Jehoshaphat Joash Amaziah Azariah Jotham you had a lot of good kings in Judah but you also had some evil ones but what we see in all of that is this truth that devotion to God sincere devotion was short lived because one king would come in and reinstitute worship take down all the high places do that for about 20 years 17 years 22 years whatever and then the next king would come in and guess what they'll put the high places back up and start worshiping the foreign gods again it was like a roller coaster and we see that all throughout first and second kings all throughout Israel's history, we see that. So this that takes place in Nehemiah is of, is of no surprise. So in this passage, we see, as, as it said here, that Nehemiah had left Jerusalem in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, which was around 433 B.C. He went back to Persia because he had promised in uh, Nehemiah, the second chapter, around the sixth verse, that you know, he was going to come back. He was basically there to make sure that everything was done and then he went back to Persia and while he was gone you know the saying when the cat is away what do the mouse do they come out to play and that's kind of what happened here so during his absence the people had returned to their former ways but the thing is they were led by the high priest Eliashib in violation of their early promises they failed to separate themselves from their pagan neighbors because that's what they had promised to do 
They fail to support the Levites and the priests. They consistently violate the laws of the Sabbath. And it was during Nehemiah's absence that Malachi wrote his, his prophecies. And in, the, in Malachi's prophecies, he indicted both the priests and the people for their, their sinful defection away from God. So word probably got back to Nehemiah about the evil that Eliashib had committed. So he returned, and we see that in verses 4 through 7. So he returned to oversee the needed changes that had to take place. And his response was what? It was swift. It was severe. He came in and he wreaked havoc. He threw out everything. He asked leave for the king. He says in verse 8, he was very angry, and he threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. And then he gave orders. He was very swift. He was very severe. And this reminds us that we must be ruthless in dealing with our own sin, just as he was with dealing with the sins of the people. Think about Jesus when he went into the temple and saw them making an exchange out of it. What did he do? Jesus became righteously angry and what did he do he fashioned himself a whip and he whipped those men who were buying and selling in the temple and he overturned those tables and those tables weren't like that little plastic table back there no these were heavy tables he fashioned a whip and he turned over those tables and he said this is to be a house of God a house of prayer for all people but you have turned it into a den of thieves he was indignant he was righteously angry and Nehemiah was the same way and this shows us how we should be in dealing with our sin so just as a big idea sinful alliances have far reaching implications we're going to see that play out we just have one principle for today and that is God's house is defiled so first of all what's the big problem what is the big deal first of all Tobiah was an Ammonite and earlier he had done everything possible to frustrate the rebuilding of the walls you see that in Nehemiah the second chapter this man was an enemy of God's people. He was one of the ones who opposed to try to sidetrack the rebuilding of the wall. So this man who had tried to frustrate the rebuilding of the walls had been given spacious living accommodations in the temple of God. That's insane. Tobiah had been a sinister and outspoken enemy of the work of God. And he was an Ammonite. Ammonites were not to be in the house of God. And we see this outlined in Deuteronomy 23, 3 through 5. And this is what the Lord said to his people. This is a command from God. An Ammonite or Moabite shall not 
enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Now, when it says 10th generation, it doesn't mean that they had to count 10 generations. In other words, I was just saying never. That's, that's basically what it was saying. He didn't say you had to count 10 generations and then they could. No, that was just a colloquialism, meaning they should never enter in. The Lord continues. He gives the reason why. Because they did not meet you with bread or water on the road when you came out of Egypt. And that's found in the book of Deuteronomy, the second chapter. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethel of Mesopotamia, to curse you. We saw this in the book of Numbers. And remember, he was a Moabite. It was the Moabite king that did that. That's found in Numbers 22 and 23. Excuse me. Nevertheless, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. Then he says, you shall not seek their peace nor their prosperity all your days forever. So God commanded them. That's what they read when, when it says at the beginning of this chapter, chapter 13, they read from the law of Moses. This is what they were reading. They were going back to the book of Deuteronomy. And they saw where it said that, that they should have no dealings with the Ammonites or the Moabites at all in the house of God. So Eliashib, the high priest or the priest, he was entrusted with a privileged responsibility. He, because priests had different jobs around the temple, his responsibility was to be in charge of the storehouse of the house of God. And when the covenant was renewed back in the 10th chapter, as we read, these same rooms is where the Levites brought their tithes. And it was where the people had brought all the other things that they needed to worship God into that storeroom. So specific duties were given to the different priests. He was to ensure that the storerooms were available for the purpose for which they were intended so that Jerusalem's worship was maintained in a regular, orderly, and dignified way. These storerooms were places to receive the offerings, to house the sacred articles of the temple, and to accommodate the Lord's servants. So Eliashib, he had a great opportunity to do a job necessary to honor God, but guess what? He went wrong. He went rogue. He forsook his responsibility as a priest, and he made an unholy alliance, and there were going to be great consequences for this. So how was God's house defiled by Eliashib? First of all, he cultivated the wrong relationship. He was closely associated with Tobiah. He was comfortable enough to let him into the house of God. And not only that, but into a storeroom for crying out loud. This passage said that he was 
allied with Tobiah. That he was an ally of his. He was allied with Tobiah. He was related to him. He made an unholy alliance. A close relationship with him of some nature. Now Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He says, do not be deceived. This will make a good bumper sticker right here. Evil company corrupts good habits. He says, awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Now, the context of 1 Corinthians 15 was about the resurrection because some people had went into the Corinthian church to tell them that the resurrection didn't happen. And so Paul, the 15th chapter of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians was all about the resurrection. When you read it, you'll see that. So he was telling them, as Corinthians, evil company corrupts good habits. Evil people can come in and corrupt you and have you thinking something that is ungodly or doing something that is ungodly. Let me tell you this, people. Unholy alliances will corrupt you. They will corrupt the church. As I talked about earlier about BLM and um, the LGBTQ sexual rebellion, you ally yourselves with them. You become allies of them. You make alliances with them. You will destroy your church and you will destroy your Christian testimony. So Paul said, evil company corrupts good habits. Rather, awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. Who are those? Those some who are bringing in these unholy alliances. They do not have the knowledge of God. They don't, they don't know the God of the Bible. They don't care to know the God of the Bible. And that was the mistake of the priest Eliashib. Spurgeon, the great Puritan preacher. He wrote about the downgrade controversy uh, later on in, in his uh, ministry. I was, I was reading about that over the weekend. Uh, the down, think about downgrade, like descending down. There were four points of contention that he had with brothers in his uh, Baptist union there in, in uh, England. There are four points of contention. One of them was the denial of the infallibility of Scripture because some believe that the Bible had errors. Another error that Spurgeon contended against was the denial of the necessity and substitutionary nature of Christ's atonement, that Christ died as our substitute because you had those who denied the substitutionary atonement, that doctrine. Another downgrade that he saw in the church that he fought against was the denial of the existence and eternality of hell. One, that hell existed, and two, that hell was eternal. Yet churches within the Baptist Union back in England where he was, that didn't believe that. You have people now who don't believe in hell that call themselves Christians. 
And then you have the affirmation of universalism that pretty much everybody's going to be saved. So Spurgeon dealt with this back in the 19th century in the 1800s, the downgrade controversy. And until his death, he fought against the downgrade of the Baptist church in Great Britain where he was all the way until the end but this is what he said he says fellowship with known and vital error is participation in sin say that again fellowship with known and vital error is participation in sin he continues those who know and love the truth of God cannot, not may or should. He says they cannot have fellowship with that which is diametrically opposed thereto. And there can be no reason why they should pretend that they have such fellowship. To be diametrically opposed, it means to the, the total opposite. He says, which scripture agrees, the truth of God, those who love the truth of God, cannot have fellowship. Now, this doesn't mean, and I say this because Paul talked about this also, that uh, we should not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That doesn't mean that we can't have friends as unbelievers. I have friends who are unbelievers. I have friends who are believers. I work with unbelievers. We have fun at work together. It's different between being around them and being with them. It's a difference. Are you a participant with them? Are you in fellowship with them? That's where the difference comes. I have friends who are unsaved. But I don't do the same things they do. I don't participate in ungodly activities that they may do. Why? Because I'm not in fellowship with them. I'm not, I'm not allied with them. I'm not in partnership with them. Because it's an unholy alliance. And again, I will say it again. They want you to compromise, but they don't want to compromise. They want you to come along their side and lay aside your biblical beliefs. But they don't want to lay aside their false beliefs and come to the light of Christ. Come to the light of belief. And Spurgeon was very serious about this. As I said, he went to his death with this. He said there could be no reason why they should pretend that they have such fellowship. Shouldn't even pretend it. Because once you compromise, game is over. You compromise on one ounce of truth, it is over. You might as well go whole hog 
as my old folks used to say, you might well just go all the way. If we as a church compromise on one aspect of biblical truth, we might as well just do it all. That's why you have a lot of apostate denominations, apostate churches. They compromise on uh, women pastors. Now they're ordaining so-called transgender people. It all started with ordaining women pastors. Now you're hanging rainbow flags from your, the front of your church. Once you say that there are different types of churches, that there's a black church and, and there's a white church, once you do that, you've compromised the truth. Next thing you know, you're going to have a Black Lives Matter banner hanging off the front of your church because you have compromised on the truth. And once you do that, you got to go all the way. Got to go all the way. And that's what Eliashib did as the priest. It was a downgrade. That's why Nehemiah was so indignant because he knew what got Israel to exile in the first place. He knows the history of God's people. And they knew it because they opened the law and saw it. But Eliashib, the high priest, he misused his office. He used a holy privilege for an unholy purpose. That large room had not been intended for a convenient city living unit for an opponent of God's people. That storehouse was not meant to house someone who was against God's people, who stood in opposition to God's people. That's not what it was for. It was meant for higher things. It was meant for a higher call, a higher purpose, a higher aspect of worship. But Elijah, rather, he wanted to please Tobiah. He forsook and marginalized the spiritual priorities for which their room had been dedicated. You know what's a shame that Christians do sometimes? We try to have a desire to please the world. We're more concerned about pleasing the world than pleasing God. We have a desire to please unbelievers because we don't want them to be angry at us. We don't want to lose their friendships. I'm going to tell you what. It doesn't matter. It should not matter. You should rather please God rather than man. I've lost lifelong friendships. And I'm not going to say it didn't hurt at first. It did. But I lost lifelong friendships because I decided to stand on gospel truth. guys that I've been friends with for 40 years since kindergarten 50 years you know just growing up together same neighborhood doing everything together in the band together going road tripping to football games together when we was in high school you know visiting each other in college and all that but they went woke and I stuck with the bible and they ostracized me and treated me like a, a social pariah, like I'm some type of plague because I stuck with the Bible. I said, I don't look at 
my less melanated church members as oppressors and me as being oppressed. I can't look at them like that because we're all in Christ. And that's what I stood on because that's biblical truth. And I lost friendships because I'm not making myself out to be anyone, but the point I'm saying is that's how we all must be. We must not make unholy alliances because you will end up being the one compromising. And when you compromise, you might as well just take it all. Take everything that this stuff stands for. You can't take, you can't eat the meat and throw away the bone because the meat itself is tainted. The meat itself is poisonous. It's tainted. But Elisha had a desire to please Tobiah and he violated God's house by doing this. And God's house as a result was defiled. The third thing that happened was Elisha had frustrated God's work. They had done all this work. Between Zerubbabel's arrival and Nehemiah's administration, all these gifts had been given to God's house to support the Levites, to support the singers and the gatekeepers, as we read about in the last chapter. They had been faithfully provided, but the improper occupancy of those rooms by an enemy of God's people disrupted that generosity. And it sent the wrong message to the Israelites. That you're going to take the storeroom that we offered all this stuff to go into and you're going to put an enemy of God's people in it? The audacity of the priest of God, the servant of God, the one who's supposed to be serving God's people. You're going to put this wicked man in the storehouse, in the house of God? That frustrated the Lord's work. Fourthly, understand this about sin. Sin is never done in isolation. Sin is always done in isolation. Always. Sin is not an isolated phenomenon. One transgression inevitably leads to another. We must know that about sin. There's no such thing as little sins. Don't think that it is. Don't believe that lie. In this case, it was the sin of greed. And it was the sin of neglect. It was the sin of greed and the sin of neglect. The greed and lust for power. And the sin of neglecting his spiritual duty. Do you know you know, we talked about the different categories of sin. You have the sin of omission and commission. The sin of omission is neglecting to do good. 
Charles Spurgeon said, neglecting to do good often spawns an opportunity for evil. When you neglect to do good, guess what? It gives birth to an opportunity for evil. We must know that sin never happens in a vacuum. It never happens in a vacuum. Even if our sins don't seem to harm anyone, they are not isolated unto themselves. We, of all, must know this as Christians. Sin is not done in a vacuum. Of all people, the sin harms the sinner. Let me give you an illustration. Why do you care so much about my marriage? I'm not hurting anyone. That's what homosexuals say about their relationships. I'm not hurting you. I'm not hurting your marriage. Why are you so worried about my marriage? That's, that's one of their arguments. Why are you worried about what I do to my body? It's not your body. To have that worldview means that your sin causes no harm to anyone. But it does. It causes great harm to you. That's why I care. You're sinning against God. You are in rebellion against God. Sin does harm. And this sin that Elisha committed harmed. Charles Spurgeon said that sin is exceedingly simple. He was quoting Romans 7 and 13. I'm going to just read this a little bit of, of his devotional that I read from March 11th. It says, beware of light thoughts of sin. At the time of conversion, and this is when I was reading this, I was like, Lord, this is so true. This is, I, I was just like, Lord, forgive me. This is, this is so true. At the time of conversion, the conscience is so tender that we are afraid of the slightest sin. You know, you first get saved, you're just afraid of the, the, the littlest sin you're afraid of when, when, when you're first saved. He says, young converts have a holy timidity, a godly fear, lest they should offend against God. But alas, very soon the fine bloom upon those first ripe fruits is removed by the rough handling of the surrounding world. The sensitive plant of young holiness turns into a willow after a life. Too much yielding, too easily yielding. It is sadly true that even a Christian may grow by degrees so callous that the sin which once startled him does not alarm him in the least. By degrees, men get familiar with sin. Their ear, the ear in which the cannon has been booming, would not notice slight sounds. At first, a little sin startles us, but soon we say, is it not a little one? Then there comes another, larger, and then another, until by degrees we begin to regard sin as but a little ill, and then follows an unholy presumption. We have not fallen into open sin. True, we tripped a little, 
but we stood upright in the main. We may have uttered one unholy word, but as for the uh, most of our conversation, it has been consistent. So we excuse sin. We throw a cloak over it. We call it by nice names. Christian, beware how thou thinkest lightly of sin. Take heed lest you fall by little and little. Sin, a little thing, is it not a poison? Who knows its deadliness? Sin, a little thing, do not little foxes spoil the grapes? Do not the tiny coral insect build a rock which wrecks ships? Do not little strokes knock down high trees? Will not continual droppings wear away stones? Sin, a little thing, it girded the Redeemer's head with thorns and pierced his heart. It made him suffer anguish, bitterness, and woe. Could you weigh the least sin in the scales of eternity, you would fly from it as far, I'm sorry, as from a serpent and abhor the least appearance of evil. Look upon all sin as that which crucified the Savior, and you will see it to be exceedingly sinful. That's the great Charles Spurgeon from his morning and evening devotional from March the 11th. The sin that Elisha committed wasn't a little sin. And that's why Nehemiah responded so angrily to it. Which leads to the final part of this principle. Uh, Elisha was not sensitive to the seriousness of sin. Had he lived closer to God, he would have never allowed Tobiah to live within the sacred uh, area of the temple or in the temple period. The temple had been built to honor God, not to promote self. Sometimes our overfamiliarity with holy things can lead to contempt and even indifference towards spiritual issues. We have to be careful and guard our hearts to do that. Eliashib knew that no Ammonite should ever uh, be admitted into the assembly of God, but his selfishness had consumed him. And he was no longer obedient as a servant of the God of, of, of God's word. He did not conform to the priestly ideal. Because that's what happens when sin is not taken seriously. So we have to be careful not to take the holy things of God for granted because we can so easily do that. There's a saying that familiarity breeds contempt. In other words, the more you're familiar with something, the, the more you take it for granted. And one concluding point. We as believers must not give the devil an inch in our life. You know the old saying, if you give him an inch, he'll do what? He'll take a mile. You crack the door for him, what will you do? Kick it wide open. That's the consequence, and that's what we see happening here with Elisha. So let's go to our application here. Just briefly, looking at 1 Kings, uh, the first chapter, 
I sent that script to you all to read. Uh, looking at Solomon here right quick in the application and just look at a couple questions and then some implications that we'll be through. So this, of course, is Solomon as the great king of God and God had given him wisdom. The Lord appeared to Solomon in the ninth chapter. Told him he would establish his throne. He said in nine and six, if you turn aside from following me, you are your children and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you. But go and serve other gods and worship them. Then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them and the house that I have consecrated for my name. I will cast out of my sight and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all the peoples and the house will become a heap of ruins. God had told Solomon that. And then what do we see in first Kings 11? Hope you had a chance to read that. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, among whom were the daughters of Pharaoh. Look at those two names. A Moabite and a what? Ammonite. And of course, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, nor shall they with you, for surely... They will turn away your heart after their gods. Again, like I always say, it is not the other people who compromise. It's the Christians. It is the people of God who compromise. And that's what God told Solomon. You're going to, they're going to turn your heart after their God. They're not going to turn and follow your God. But those unholy alliances, unless you're ministering Christ to them, and even then, they're not going to turn and worship your God. They reject your God. They despise your God. They're going to turn your hearts to worship their God. And then it says, Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. From when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. He went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did what was evil inside the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. He built a high place. For Kamash, the abomination of Moab, and for Moloch, the abomination of the Ammonites. Moloch was the god of child sacrifice. So he not only worshipped their gods, but he built high places to them, an unholy alliance. We must be very careful and discerning. Again, it's not that we don't have friendships with people, but not alliances. The Bible says friendship with the world is enmity with God. It, uh, 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 friendship means alliances, partnership. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. First John 2. All that's in the world is lust of flesh, lust of, lust of eyes, and the pride of life, and the Father's not in them. 
He who is a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Friendship with the world, again, means partnership with the world. Giving in to the world. Trying to be liked by the world. Those unholy alliances will take us away from the God whom we serve. And you will find yourself serving those gods. The same thing in a marriage. You marry someone who's not a Christian. Guess what? You're going to be the one that's going to have the grief. Oh, my husband, he don't want to. He don't want to go to church. And my wife, she don't. She don't want to go to church. She don't want me. She don't even want me going to church. Why? You, why are you getting up on Sunday mornings? That's what. That's what happened. Why are you praying? Why are you? Why, why you know? Why, why are you going to this Bible study? Why are you going to this? You know. Why? Because they're not believers. And it's going to cause you grief. I've seen it in my past, in my time in, in pastoral ministry. It will cause grief. It'll cause grief to your children because you want to raise your children in a godly way and they don't. You're committed to giving your money to the church and, and they don't think you should be doing that. Your time to the church, you don't think you should be doing that? We end up being the ones serving their gods. And that's what we see in this passage. And, and so I look at this question here, these two questions. What sinful attitudes or actions have you allowed in your life? We have to think about that. What sinful attitudes have I allowed in my life that is of the world? And actions that are of the world. That's what we see with Solomon. How have close associations with the people of the world or ungodly family members, friends, and relationship had a negative impact on your impact on your spiritual health? Have they? Any close associations with people of the world, whether it's it could be family members, it could be friends, it could be relationships. How have they had a negative impact on our spiritual health? That matters. How have they influenced us? When I pray for, I, I pray for all of y'all every morning. Um, I do. And I, I pray for those of us at work. We work around ungodly people. And we have to work around them. Always pray that uh, you all put on the whole arm of God and that you're able to withstand the schemes of the devil, as Paul wrote in Ephesians 6. That he gives you all discerning hearts and gives me a discerning heart, give all of us discerning hearts on our jobs that we don't allow the uh, evil influences on our job to to uh, affect our spiritual health. It's so easy for me to gossip on my job. It is. I'm going to tell y'all a bank secret. When customers come in, acting a certain way, looking a certain way, when they leave out, everybody starts talking. They do. That's a secret. It happens if everybody gets quiet when you walk out. If it's, if it's something you did crazy or said crazy, you smell crazy or look crazy or whatever case may be, guess what? When you leave out... That's what they're gonna do. I kind of retreat into my office and go back and sit down because I'm like, mm -mm. 
No. And sometimes I've been caught up in, I'm not going to lie, because I don't do it perfectly. But I have to learn to be, you know, discerning. Lord, when they start talking, let me go back to my office. Let me go back to my office. Let me retreat. <laughs> because you can get caught up in it so easily and so quick. And they can affect our spiritual health because we'll become a gossip. We begin to slander people. And then we'll commit the sin of murder, speaking evil against someone. That's that's what murder is. That's what Jesus said in John, I'm sorry, in, in Matthew 5. You begin to speak against a person, speak evil against them. Next thing you know, you're committing murder with your mouth. It can it can happen just like that. Or other type of evil influences in our relationship with our family members, same thing. Just because you're related by blood. My wife and I dealt with that with, with uh one of my family members. I'm not I'm not gonna promote that. I'm not gonna participate in that. I'm not gonna approve of that sinful behavior, sinful lifestyle that you're living just because, you know, you're my relative. I love you. Because, you know, we're related by blood. We come from the same mother and father, but just because you're my sibling or cousin or niece or nephew doesn't mean that I'm going to approve of a lifestyle that goes against scripture. That's, that's, that's because I love you. I'm not going to agree with it. Instead of approving of it, approving of your sin and you're rebelling against God. That's not love. That's actually hate. You don't care what happens with their soul. I think that's it. I'm going to stop right there. Let us pray. Father, I, I pray for us. ask you to help us to examine our lives, our relationships, our friendships. It's not that we're not to have friends who are unbelievers. It's not that we're not to um, be chummy or be friendly with those who reject you. But Father, we're not to be in alliance with them. We're not to be in partnership with them. We're not to be in fellowship with them. Because, Lord, it is always us who has to compromise. It is always Christians. It is always believers who have to compromise biblical truth. But, Lord, may that not be so among us here at the Living Church uh, as a church and as individuals. May we hold fast and hold forth the word of God. May we examine whether our allies believe in God or have Christ as Lord. May we be discerning when they try to introduce compromise. May we not be deceived. Give us holy boldness, Lord, to stand on your truth and not be like Eliashib who compromised your temple. But Lord, may we be like Jesus. He was the perfect sinless son of God 
and who proclaim your truth boldly as he went to the cross. May we bear his example, Father, and proclaim the truth also and bear our cross as a result. In Christ's name I pray.